Welcome to episode 41 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Dr. Dimity Dornan. Dimity is a social entrepreneur, a bionics advocate, a speech-language pathologist, a researcher, and founder and executive director of Hear and Say, and founder and chair of Bionics Queensland in Queensland, Australia. Dimity has also been appointed as an adjunct professor to the University of Queensland and an adjunct professor to the Science and Engineering Faculty, the School of Mechanical, Medical, and Process Engineering at University of Queensland as well. In 1992, she established the Hear and Say Center as a leading not-for-profit center for deaf children learning to listen and speak particularly those with surgically implantable hearing technology, like the bionic ear or cochlear implant. She is currently sharing her experience for the benefit of the stakeholders in the wider bionics industry through Bionics Queensland. Dr. Dornan is aiming to bring outcomes similar to those legendary ones made possible for many people who use the bionic ear or cochlear implants, to other new spin-off devices, such as the bionic eye, deep brain stimulation, and other bionic organs and limbs. So, Dimity is a very, very busy person. She has just recently decided to retire from the Hear and Say Center, but as you can hear from her introduction, she has many more things uh, that she's interested in doing especially with Bionics Queensland. So, it's my pleasure to welcome one of my favorite people in the world, Dimity Dornan, to the podcast. So, Dimity, it's great to have you on this podcast, and and welcome. It's It's great to have a conversation with you. Thank you, Todd. It's lovely to talk to you again. So, let's start at the beginning. Uh, how did how did you become a speech language pathologist? That's that's uh, always an interest of mine because it's not here in the states, at least. It's not you know the first top of the list for most people when they think about professions. So how did that happen? Well, it was very much the same in Australia because uh, speech pathology or speech therapy, as it was called then, just wasn't on anybody's horizon, and uh, I was. Um, Going young to university, I was only 16, um, whereas everyone else was 18. My parents wanted me to be a nurse or a teacher or go into the public service. And I just said, no, I don't want to do any of those. (laughs) And uh, luckily, um, a professor of psychology two doors down was on the board for starting a new speech pathology course, the first ever for Queensland. And um, I listened to him talk and I thought, well, I like speech, I like language, 
I like anything to do with English, so I, I think I'll do that. And it was a really, it was just a, um, a hunch decision, but it was the very best decision I could have made. The only alternative that I perhaps would have done was medicine if I knew that women could have done it in those days, but it really certainly wasn't done. So um, speech pathology was my choice, and I tell you what, I couldn't have picked a better. Sure. Uh, and so once you finish your degree in, in speech pathology, what was your first experiences like? Well, when we uh, first went into the speech pathology course at the University of Queensland in the first year, there were no textbooks, there were no videos, there were no, there was nothing but one lecturer who was very talented. She'd been in London um, working at a Bobath clinic for children who had cerebral palsy, mm -hmm. which I found fascinating. And uh, we went on from there with a class of 26 and we ended up with five people who graduated wow. and uh, that was really quite something in those days so I, I actually really enjoyed being part of that cohort but what it did for me was uh, it also meant that I when I when I graduated I had to practice in different uh, areas in a pioneer capacity because the jobs didn't exist mm -hmm. um, the um, the work experience didn't exist so we had to go from Brisbane to Melbourne to do six weeks um, a, a prac block. And then right. uh, we also, uh, once we did graduate, have to work in all sorts of different situations where there'd never been a speech pathologist before. So it was really like making up a profession as we went, um, finding your own resources, finding out how to do things. But that st stood me in good stead all my life, Todd, mm -hmm. because... What it's meant is that I'm not frightened to make things up as I go along. I'm not frightened to try things I haven't tried. And really, that's what my life's been all about as a speech pathologist. I I think, uh, Dimity, anyone who knows you uh, and has had the opportunity to to get to know you, even just a little bit, would see you as someone who who doesn't take no for an answer and is very creative and flexible and is, is going to find a solution, uh, period. Um, and, and nothing's going to hold you back. So I, I think it's, it's, uh, that, that is what I have seen all these years uh, in, in watching you and, and knowing you. So it must have all started way back then. It did. It did. And it, it seemed like rather a handicap at the time to have no <laughs> books in the library. Uh, no journals. Um, the mm -hmm. only thing that we had was the occasional journal that came in from overseas, and we um, we had to make our own conferences. There were none. You know, Australia's a long way from everywhere, and in those days, you didn't normally fly overseas to conferences. Right. Um, but it's once they were available to us for different reasons, you really went to the ends of the earth to get there, which is what I used to do by coming to the United States to sit on the AG Bell and um, the AVI board um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when I had that opportunity. So what was some of those early work experiences that you had as a, as a speech language pathologist? Funnily enough, it was always connected with the brain. Hmm. And that's something that I've always been interested in for a start because of that medical leaning of mine more than right. an, edu an educational leaning. And uh, I um, 
I worked in, um, first of all, in a new, brand new opening geriatric unit with strokes and head injuries. And I specialised mm-hmm. in that for some 15 years. Wow. And uh, I also used to work in the um, uh, the paraplegic ward um, and a, a number of those other uh, places that are allied to that and um, people with degenerative brain diseases. And all of those set me up for the rest of my career as well. And that was... Um, that was a very pivotal part of of what happened to me when I graduated. After I finished there, I was headhunted to be the first speech pathologist at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, which was a a major hospital in Brisbane, very large Mm -hmm. even then. And uh, I used to, and, and over a large campus, so I used to run up and down this hill all day from the children's to the adults to the psychiatric unit um, and, and I did everything, basically. And to have to triage the patients and to decide how to give them the very best uh, treatment with no resources, there was no <laughs> department of speech pathology, there was me in a little room and my two legs. And, uh, and that also was a very big learning experience. And so were you accepted? I mean, were you welcomed as a part of the medical team? No, we had to really tell everybody what speech pathologists do. Mm. Um, And that was really quite unusual for people. But I was lucky because the person who headhunted me was the youngest um, neurologist at the the Queensland University. And he was very forward thinking. And Mm. he was my immediate boss. And he, um, he hired me to do work on aphasia and to develop um, for the first time ever, a test for aphasia, which was called the Queensland University Language and Aphasia Test. And wow. I, I'm sure it's right across uh, from everybody's archives now. But <laughs> it was really it was really of interest to me because we had to think of how to break, um, say, language and aphasia down into um, small pieces, how to test mm-hmm. all those small pieces it was pre-Luria. There was no, nobody knew much about language. And right. uh, we needed to test it on, on a thousand school children um, and use age norms uh, because there was nothing else to use. So that was a huge challenge and um, interesting in parts, but also a lot of hard work as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of traveling around to schools to setting up these children trying to explain to teachers why we were doing things like this. And um, and then um, by the time we got to the end, it took 10 years to do all of that. Wow. And by the time I'd done that and I'd um, started to go, um, I'd got married, started to have children, and uh, I went in and out of, of that job for many years. And But once again, it was exactly what I needed to know what the brain was all about, how to break Mm -hmm. down the different elements that were needed in um, all sorts of different cognition um, processes. And it's also given me a way of thinking about the world today, which I would never have had that opportunity otherwise. So once again, serendipity, but also it was that interest in the brain that was leading me along. Right, right. And so you you mentioned you were doing that for... 15 years or so? Um, yes, my, the first 15 years of my working life was spent in working in adult 
head injury and and strokes. That's that's amazing. And and so let's let's move into the area of hearing loss. And so tell me that origin story of what uh, what happened, and you became inspired to do something for these children that had hearing loss and and couldn't listen and talk. Absolutely. So I was running, literally running up the hill one day to the Princess Alexandra Hospital, which um, had the geriatric unit to test a gentleman who'd had a stroke overnight. And um, as I was running up, I came across this about 15-year-old boy lying in the gutter at the edge of the road and drumming his heels into the gutter and screaming loudly and I couldn't get him to stop and I asked him what was wrong Um, and then I suddenly thought oh he's been hit by a car or a bus I'm going to see if I can get a doctor so I started to run up the hill um, to do that and a, um, a, a woman came out of a nearby house and the boy sort of alerted and she signed to the boy and what she signed was are you sick and he signed back no my bus money has rolled into the drain and I realized then that that was a deaf school there and he um and of course in those days it was all signing deaf especially in Queensland um we um we had two very important professors who um were professors of assigned approaches to communication for people with hearing loss and uh, that was all that was available and there was this school at the height of the um the um rubella epidemic epidemic and they were there were children everywhere in this school as i found out later but anyway with this boy he stopped screaming he stopped drumming his heels and he signed back no my bus money has rolled into the drain and I suddenly thought, this is terrible. Here is this young man in an emergency. I cannot speak to him. I do not know sign language, and he cannot speak back to me. I'm sure there must be a better way of doing things because how can this young man live out in the outside world and communicate with the public at large? So um, that's what I've spent the rest of my life doing. (laughs) So so, um, that's an amazing story. And so what what do you do? You say you 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 go in and say I'm changing careers. I'm changing the path of, you know, my path here. I've been doing all this work with adults. I'm suddenly now going in this direction. So how did that sort of shift happen? It took a while. It took a little while. Um I'd been working um until the uh the publication of this language and aphasia test. And once that happened, I just took a little break. I started to work at other clinics, um, always connected with um, aged people and always connected with the brain again. And then Mm -hmm. eventually I had a young speech pathologist contact me and say, would you come and work in a signing deaf program? And I said to her, well, I'd quite like to. My children are grown up now and I'm really happy to learn how to do that, Um, but I don't know a thing about it. And she said to me something that was very, very formative to me, and that was, no, but you have the ability to find out. And I've been finding out ever since. And that's something that Mm -hmm. um, has stood me in very good stead. So I, 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 
uh, had no idea what to do. So I started work in this signing deaf um, centre for school children. It was a school with lots and lots of deaf children in a, a deaf unit. And uh, I started working with them. After about four years, I realised I was working very hard. I had uh, 44 hours a week, I think, to see the children. And I had oh, hundreds of children to see. And I couldn't play God and decide which child was going to get um, my um, support. And it was a case of it just felt like I was being a big Band-Aid. I just wasn't getting anywhere because of this little time that I had to apply to each patient, each child. And uh, so I decided that parents should be involved. So I wrote a letter to all the parents and spoke to anyone I saw and asked them if they would come into the lesson so they would know what to do at home and perhaps extend the, um, the, 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 the lessons at home in a normal situation. Nobody came. And that really, really disappointed me. So I decided to leave that program eventually and go looking for a parent-based program. And I found that program in Sydney at the Shepherd Centre, which just a few years um, before that, had um, it, it was started by Dr Bruce Shepherd and Annette Shepherd, who had two deaf boys. And those deaf boys, they decided they wanted to listen and speak and enter their, their world. And, um, and live in their milieu of, of, um, of, of friends and family. Sure. And they went um, to the John Tracy Clinic and they sent a teacher over to the John Tracy Clinic to learn how to do that approach. And she brought that back into Australia and the Shepherd Centre was born at Sydney University. So I started to pal up with them and started to see do some of their courses, started to work in Queensland in, and opened a private practice so that I could do that. And, uh, and that, again, was different for me. Um, the Shepherd Centre at that stage had a parent-based program, but only in that they had a, um, a workshop every year. The parents didn't ever sit in the classes, or if they did, they were silent. They didn't take part in the classes. So once again, I felt that we could do a little better. The outcomes mm -hmm. were great, but I just I just felt that we could do a little better because I had by this stage really compared the listening brain with the brain that I was very familiar with in brain injury and head and, and strokes. And right. then I realized that for children to do better, they would need to have a lot, lot more practice. And so right. that their brains had that automaticity of hearing something, understanding it, and then speaking. At the same time, uh, around the 1970s, Dr. Um, Dr. Graham Clark was inventing mm -hmm. the multi-channel cochlear implant here in Australia. Right. And that was going to come to Queensland. The first child in the world was done in Sydney in 1987. And uh, the first child, uh, I mean, that set a precedent. We had heard... Um, reports that the outcomes were very good and interesting. And uh, so when I knew that it would come to Queensland, I decided to set up a not-for-profit program that would um, capitalise on the, the new auditory brain access that I believe that the cochlear implant or bionic ear 
as it was called then, had the potential to give. And uh, so that was that was um, the way my brain was working. Mm-hmm. So I decided after seeing Judy Simza talk at a conference on the Gold Coast in Brisbane, right. and I remember saying to myself, this is amazing. The children in her videos were doing so much better than the children I saw in Australia. And I just thought I want my children to do as well as that. So um, as I drove home from the Gold Coast, there were bombs falling on Jerusalem. It was such a pivotal time in our Mm, history. And I thought, I have to do something good for mankind (laughs) that will counteract this horrible thing that was happening. And uh, so um, it was a case of what will I do? Judy had invited me to come and learn from her. How can I get there? I came home and spoke to my husband, Peter, and he uh, explained to me he'd just written an an application for a young artist who wanted to get a Churchill Fellowship, which was Mm -hmm. uh, available to people in the Commonwealth. And uh, he said, why didn't I try for that? So I did and was lucky enough to be awarded it. The next thing that happened was I took that scholarship up. It was a very good one. I took that scholarship up. I went to um, Ottawa mm-hmm. and to Judith Sims's clinic and I, I lived in a rotary-run uh, hotel, motel, for mm-hmm. the whole time I was there and uh, it was the first time I'd been away from home, the first time I'd left my <laughs> children and husband at home. So it was quite, you know, quite challenging for me. Sure. But Judy was amazing and she let me sit in sit in on everything for um I think some four weeks which was just changed my life and once again you could see the power of the brain once it was accessed and I also then um had written to um to sorry just give me a minute (laughs) I know it as well as anything (laughs) I'd also written to Warren Estabrooks and asked mm-hmm. him if I could come and see him. So I went off then to, to Toronto and uh, that was very um, pivotal for me because the sorts of uh, outcomes that Warren was turning out were mm-hmm. just amazing. And uh, I, I thought if I put all of this together, it will just change the way we were doing things in Australia. So that's what I did. I took back all of their approaches, which was the early early stages of um, of AVI, and I took those right. back to Australia, um, immediately set up the Hear and Say Centre, um, especially calling it Hear and Say with a showcase on the fact that deaf children could learn to listen and speak. I started with uh, six children in 1992 on the 6th of July, Wow. which is exactly 30 years ago, this <laughs> last month, right. just. Yes. And uh, and so I've just retired from that position. I've been doing that for the last 30 years. It's amazing. So the listening brain has followed me all the way through <laughs> my, my speech pathology career. And so after 30 years, tell us, uh, you started with six children how many kids, how many families are you have you worked with? Are, are you working with now? And you guys have satellite centers and and all kinds of things in terms of hear and say, right? 
Yes, um, at this stage, Todd, we've got five centres throughout Queensland. Now, Queensland is a very large state for those of you who haven't been to Australia. Mm-hmm. It's three times bigger than the state of Texas. It's very, very wow. big. All of the population is down the um, the coastline and uh, it's very, um, very different from south in Brisbane to north up to the tip where there's a lot of Indigenous um, areas. We have different characters to each of our different centres in all of those places. And uh, we also have a telepractice program that was um, pioneered by Emma Rushbrook. Mm -hmm. And we, we, who I know you know very well, Mm -hmm. and uh, we have um, outreach centres for our telepractice program anywhere the internet can go. So um, over the many years, um, or perhaps in the last 10 years, we've had over a 1,000 children on our books at the one time. We also have a very strong audiology program. Now, that audiology program um, looks after children as soon as they've been diagnosed through the newborn hearing screening clinic from Queensland Health, which I personally also work very hard to get. And um, mm-hmm. and we uh, those audiologists look after children from there right through and now into a cohort of adults as our children, have, as you would imagine, have grown up. Right. And uh, we also have added adults to our program as well. So um, that's the way things have sort of progressed. And out of all those 1,000 children, we usually have about three to 400 at any one time in early intervention with a full suite of programs, including um, social skills programs uh, and all kinds of different age-based programs, as well as their individualised auditory verbal therapy. That's amazing. That's just amazing that that uh, 30 years later, all this has happened uh, because of that um, that encounter with this young, deaf, uh, 15-year-old boy who couldn't communicate or was communicating but uh, wouldn't be able to communicate with the with the general public so to speak that's correct yes that's right that's amazing so it was, it was um, it, it, what i'm talking about really is when i look back and put it all together it was just mm-hmm. the most amazing series of events um that i couldn't have couldn't reproduce if i'd have tried it was just obviously meant to happen Yes, I, you know, I think, you know, whether it's God or the universe or whatever puts you in that place at that time to have that experience. And, and all these years later, I mean, it's just been phenomenal. And I haven't been there to Australia. I have not visited the Here and Say Center, but you guys have generously taken my grad students from time to time. And they all, of course, come back wanting to move to Australia <laughs> and, and work there full time. And I said, well, describe it to me, you know, describe Australia and Brisbane and, and Queensland and all this. And, and they said, well, it's kind of like the United States, but so much better. <laughs> oh, oh, so, I wouldn't say that. I've loved my time in the United States mm-hmm. on the, uh, the ABI board and then um, the, the, um, the AGBL board after that. I really loved it and I really miss it. If I get out of a plane and see the American flag, I sometimes feel as if I'm more American than Australian. But having said that, there's nothing, there's nothing like um, 
the Australian ethos, the absolutely um, amazing way that they will dig in and help their neighbours. And mm. uh, in the regional areas, uh, all of our regional programs have such different personalities, but the support from that area is so, so good. So I, I think that I think that Australia has a little edge in the fact that we have this big, wide, open place. We've had to work out how to communicate uh, between each of the different areas. We've had to do things like rely on the mining industry to help us to get out to those regions. You know, you you have to use a lot of initiative to, to think of ways that you can overcome that distance problem. And um, it's second nature to us to use telepractice because, um, and in in, uh, the the COVID last two and a half years, Mm -hmm. we changed from full face-to-face to to, um, full um, telepractice in about a week and a half. And um, I thought that was a real testament to Emma and to all the other clinicians that we have working with us. Right, right. Yeah, it was... uh... Quite the experience here as well, you know, and uh, luckily you guys had been, you know, have been doing telepractice before COVID. So many places here um, had to, you know, sort of jump in and start doing telepractice with little or no training. And, uh, and so it's, it's been a, it's been a bumpy ride for some centers, some clinicians, um, over the past two years. And, and some of them don't, don't have a very positive, view of telepractice because of that um others were you know just the opposite they'd never done it before but now they love it and want to keep doing it uh, and i would say the same with the parents um some parents love it want to keep it and others were so overwhelmed with the public schools being online and then any therapy being online that they were just like okay we can't do any more of this online stuff it's just too much for me and so that's how some parents have reacted. So it's been an interesting mix of reactions. I, I feel that um, one of the great things that we've been able to accomplish um, using telepractice is to continue our social skills programs online. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 been very helpful. I mean, it's nothing to go in and see a whole screen full of babies sitting on their parents' laps and <laughs> having a ball. Sure. And the little ones today are so used to a screen that it's just mm-hmm. um, something that they really love. So, right. <laughs> yes, but quite an art as well. Very much so. Very much so. I, 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 my hat is off to anyone who can have those those infants and toddlers in a group through telepractice and keep them all engaged at the same time. I, I, I bow down to those clinicians who can do that. So. Uh, so it's it's not an easy task. No, no, me too. And so you've you've just retired after thirty years, and I was I was trying to think, uh, trying to recall exactly when you and I first met. And I think it was probably at with AVI being on the board there. Uh, yes, it was. Uh, you know, I have lots of memories of 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 the board, but also have memories of, of like six of us cramming into a car and going places in Washington and Alexandria, <laughs> like to dinner and things. Um, it was and I lots remember, of fun. 
and lots of fun. Yes, yes. And uh, and and you, of course, were. Uh, I think you maximized every visit to the United States because you would come in for a board meeting, but then you were going to go to like to three more places and and visit and observe therapy or have some contact that you were working on to to help the program back in Australia. So uh, I was just you know admiring everything you were doing then, you know, to to make the Here and Say Center successful. Well, Todd, I, I think you just hit the nail on the head of what I was doing. I I was really using the opportunity, not only of meeting the most brilliant people in the world, but also to practitioners, but also to going and seeing these other programs that I'd hear about and picking the eyes out of them to try mm-hmm. and um, emulate what they'd done and, uh, and, and to work out the very best way to work with children and families to get the very best outcomes. And um, my PhD, which I finished, um, and I did it over nine years. It took me a long mm-hmm. time working full time. But uh, doing that over nine years, uh, it was the, the final publications were released in 2011. Right. And uh, I had the most amazing uh, feeling because what I was telling people here in Australia we were able to do actually was found in the research results. And I used to sit next to the computer watching them come off <laughs> the computer uh, from the statistician and mm-hmm. just absolutely awed with the fact that I was just getting the numbers that I needed because nobody, it was very much new and different to do auditory verbal therapy in Australia. And mm-hmm. um, I had a lot of criticism, a real lot of criticism and public criticism as well, which was pretty hard. Um, but I'd, once I got my um, impetus to go to the University of Queensland and to get my doctorate and to do these studies, I found that things started to get better because you could actually quote the, the research back to them, not actually my research, but you could quote the literature. Sure. And uh, so what I did is I took two groups of children, a group from um, here and say, and uh, with an average age of 2.46 years, so they're quite young. And mm-hmm. uh, in those days, that was young. And mm-hmm. um, and a group of children with normal hearing. And once again, thanks to my experience with the language and aphasia test, I um, got a group of children with normal hearing, but I matched them for language age and for um, uh, auditory reception to um, to this this children from here, these children from here and say, and uh, I matched them for a number of parameters, but I, I matched them for um, listening age, mm-hmm. um, not chronological age. And that that really gave me a good way to test their progress, as you will know, because mm-hmm. you were a great help. And <laughs> uh, and that what that what that has done is that um, I found out that both groups over four years and two months, which is a long time. Long time, yeah. Um, yeah, it is a long time. And they both tested yeah. out as having the same rate of progress for listening, spoken language, uh, mathematics, self-esteem. Um, um, just quite forget, can't forget all the different parameters. But mm-hmm. but there was nothing that fell behind. Um right when you sort of looked at the results and looked at the rate of progress according to that initial 
listening age or language age, which they were matched for at the beginning. So that was the first time that that, that had been shown. And um, mm-hmm. I, I feel that it was a great surprise to many people that I know that that was possible, but it's um, just changed the way that people thought. Yeah, I, I still cite your your studies when I do presentations because it was one of the rare sort of longitudinal studies looking at outcomes with children who were doing, you know, auditory verbal therapy, um, listening and spoken language as people refer to it now. But yeah, I, I still cite that. And I think it's, it was great research and it holds up. The only thing I would have liked to have done, Todd, is I would have liked to have kept working with you and the other couple of people here in Australia. And I would have liked to have um, had another cohort going that looked at long-term outcomes because what we really still don't have is the the long-term education and career prospects for these groups so that we can say what the cost-benefit analysis is of teaching children listening and spoken language instead of of other approaches or mixtures of other approaches and right. um and that's something that i've always it's it's quite hard to do because you lose contact with the children and families but right. i'm hoping that someone out there listening to this <laughs> might might be able to engineer it because of where they're working maybe so who knows maybe maybe the millions of listeners that we have um well someone will pick up that that task that that challenge and and move it forward um, you mentioned, you said something there when you were talking about the research that, that in Australia, people just weren't, uh, really doing a lot of auditory verbal therapy and you got a lot of resistance at first, you know, and that strikes me as, as sort of, uh, uh, odd, cause it's almost like a bipolar reaction for the country of Australia in a sense that you have Graham Clark over here developing the cochlear implant you know, a a technology that will provide audition, essentially, to children. But then you have people saying, well, you know, the approach doesn't work. Um, Was was there ever, I mean, it just seems kind of uh, ironic that you had such resistance, but we also have this huge company there that's doing all this work in terms of cochlear implants. It, it is very strange, um, <laughs> but I, I think that the professionals who were working at that time, especially those in middle management, mm-hmm. they didn't know any other ways to work and they were scared that that the sorts of uh, outcomes that I was turning out would really literally change the way they worked mm-hmm. and they didn't know what to do. So I can understand it in some ways. But it was very, very hard when you were trying to work with this new technology in a new way. Um, it, I mean, it was such a pivotal thing to happen. Graham Clark used to say to me, um, Professor Graham Clark used to say mm. to me, Dimity, this is the first time that the human brain, the human consciousness and a replaced human sense have been interfaced together. Mm. So I knew then it was such a very, very special time in history and I had Vince, Vinton Cerf, Dr. Vinton Cerf, coming from the States mm-hmm. to stay with me out here, and I introduced him to, to Graham Clark, and uh, the two of them got on extremely well. So at the same time as Graham Clark was inventing the <laughs> multi-channel cochlear implant in mm-hmm. Australia, 
then Surf was working with Robert Kahn to do the um, the the beginning of the the internet, right? And uh, they've stayed friends as well, which has been very interesting. Yeah. <coughs> well, that's amazing. That's amazing. I, I would love to have been the fly on the wall just listening to those two, you know, chat about whatever. That was my honor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they could have been chatting about the weather. I probably would have been enthralled with everything they were having to say. Um, yes. So I, I do want to be respectful of your time. I know you're very busy. So I wanted to get to what you're doing now uh, post-retirement. Retirement I, with you, I don't think really is an appropriate word. You're no longer at here and say, but you're, you're, you're refocusing your energies. Let's just say that. Yes, well, I've I've been doing this for quite some years, Todd, because right. um, having spent many years working with the uh, Bionics Institute in Melbourne, because um, for 28 years here in the say were very, um, very valued members of the Hearing Cooperative Research Centre in Australia that's been turning mm. out some of these wonderful Australian studies. Um, right. They... They were holding Bionics Institute's uh, conferences on bionics, not just ear bionics, but everything bionics. Mm -hmm. And every year I would go along and listen and be enchanted by what the, the, the future prospects were. Right. So um, I guess it was a no-brainer for me to put the groups together that I knew that had come out of hearing research and hearing manufacturing um, and we're now working in the bionic brain, the, the beginnings of the bionic eye, all mm -hmm. bionic limbs, pain control, all these different things, and, and try to put them into a group in Australia so that we would perhaps be able to accelerate the industry because it really annoyed me that people were were all each working in their individual silos, were right. inventing their own way of going but never getting together more than this conference, which happened every one sort couple of years right. which was fabulous so um i decided to put an australian group together i called it um the um human bionics interface and it uh went very well but it didn't have the arms and legs to drive it at a national level with no funding base so mm -hmm. i pulled back to queensland todd and um that was 2013 i pulled back to queensland and have been working ever since in parallel to here and say uh, to, to build a network. So I decided to build a Queensland network. There was a lot of things happening here in many areas. And so Bionics Queensland was born. It was formally launched in 2019. Um, I'm still the founder and chair. Um, so I'm working on the board and chair of the board. We have a full-time CEO, Dr. Robin Stokes, and a full-time um, uh, executive. And uh, things have been moving along rather well. Um, I'd encourage listeners to look at the website. It's www.bionicsqueensland, all spelt out, .com.au. And you'll see that among the things we've been doing is uh, holding a challenge, a bionics challenge. It's now in its third year. Last year, and we've, we've been raising money for to give um, researchers and inventors um, who are working on bionic projects awards and last year, the Bionics Challenge was won nationally by a bionic pancreas, which is two, two sorts of adversarial AI that fight against each other, 
to find right. just the right amount of of um, of uh, neuropharmacological product that's needed to deal with fragile type one diabetes, right. and uh, the um, the state Queensland State Award last year was won by a bionic larynx, wow. which is being commercialised at the moment now. And so um, this year the accent is on trauma, and we're mm. just about to start accepting. Um, we've we've launched it all over. Um, Australia and especially in Queensland, and uh, we're just about to um, to get the first um, applications coming in for that. And those people who have something that is uh, awarded will also be given a commercialisation course as well. So there'll be all sorts of different inventions moving along, um, ready for people to invest in. So that's what I'm doing now. Um, it's wonderful work and it has the same feel about it as I used to get in the early days of the bionic ear where you knew mm. that the brain was being accessed. Now, in these types of devices, once again, the concept, if you think of the bionic ear as the first successfully commercialised neuromodulation device, right. um, one which interfaces with the brain and nervous system and changes it in the case of the bionic ear forever, changes the brain forever. Right. So we have all sorts of new devices that are coming on that will do similar things, but it's branched out a lot from there as well to include um, uh, all sorts of devices, um, both internal and external, um, and uh, also autobionics, which is the regenerative medicine type of approach. But the most exciting thing is the convergence of all the different ideas. And the um, and VinServe's internet has now causing this great connectivity, which mm -hmm. uh, means a, a whole new raft of um, devices to help mankind and to, to treat formerly untreatable conditions. And uh, so it's a very, very exciting time to be involved. Well, it's it's just amazing. It's amazing technology. I mean, just some of the things I read about and what they're working on and what you've just described, it's all quite amazing. And it's going to be... <clears throat> excuse me, the next, you know, five to 10 years, it's, it's, it's going to be an amazing time to be alive to see some of these inventions and some of these new therapies and new products, new uh, bionic products that will treat all these different uh, areas that, like you said, that couldn't be treated before. So it gives yes. me hope. It gives a lot of people hope, and I think that's the tricky part, to give people just enough hope but not too much for their individual um, condition or um, difficulties. And um, I think that takes me back. I hear this little Judah Simser voice I have in my head mm -hmm. say, um, never prejudge a child or a family on what they can actually do because they will surprise you continually. And I keep that... I keep that mantra in my brain when I'm looking at all these different um, other devices and different other treatments, which uh, no one ever could believe. But the ones that interest me most are the ones that open up the brain, so the brain-computer interface types approaches for people who have no, no way of expressing themselves at all. So right. I find those incredibly exciting. Wow. Well, Dimini, you, you are... Uh, an inspiration. You've been an inspiration for me for for a very long time, 
And uh, I know the new work that you'll be doing, are doing, have been doing with uh, Bionics Queensland is going to have another tremendous impact uh, on many, many lives, just like you've done with Here and Say. So thank you for joining me on the podcast. And I wish you nothing but all the success in the world with all these different ventures that you have. Thank you, Todd. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you again, Dimity, for joining me on the podcast. And congratulations on your retirement. Even though retirement for you means moving on to some other big, big projects and making access to care more available to more people. And and what I so admire about you, Dimity, is how you see a problem and you go after it. You try to fix it. You try to solve it. And you bring people together to do that. And I've always admired you um, in terms of just seeing the problem and, and getting the resources together, talking to the right people and making a difference uh, for the people of Queensland uh, and Australia as a whole. So again, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and good luck with Bionics Queensland. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more very soon about the outcomes that you will be getting. So And with that, thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode. Please come back and uh, for another episode in two weeks. Uh, Missed a couple of weeks this past month. I do apologize for that. Um, In my other job as a professor, we had to get the semester started, and it uh, kind of impacted my schedule a little bit. But I'm back on track now, so be back again in two weeks with another new episode. And as you know, I'm trying to release these episodes every two weeks. So thank you again for listening. Please leave us a five-star review. That always helps us attract even more listeners and subscribers, which is what we want to do. Uh, And with that, thank you again. And until next time, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. Oh, 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 o